This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Buy the book on BFM 89.9. If you can talk with crowds and keep your virtue, or walk with kings nor lose the common touch, if neither foes nor loving friends can hurt you, if all men count with you, but none too much, if you can fill the unforgiving minute with 40 seconds worth of distance run, yours is the earth and everything that's in it. And which is more, you'll be a man, my son. Hello, everyone. You're listening to Buy the Book. I'm Sharmila Ganesan. And as always with me today, my fellow post-colonial reader, Lee Chui Lin. Hello, I thought you were going to say victim of colonialism, which is also accurate. Yeah, I decided to tone it down for now because I figured we're going to get there anyway. It is our monthly bibliography episode and we decided to um, try one of the more controversial, tricky, but also interesting writers. Today we're going to be talking about Rudyard Kipling. Yes, um, and we're doing this partly because it's his month of birth. It's also the the month in which his wife was born, his daughter was born. So December, I think, was a special month for the Kipling family. I want to establish early on, though, because um, he is an author with whom I have many struggles, which we'll get to shortly. But chief among those is his name. So... <laughs> Um, I, I realize I've vacillated wildly in my lifetime between Rudyard and Rudyard. And what is it? I said Rudyard just now, but I also vacillate. So <laughs> I think as long as we've set up that we're going to do it, you know, either way, we're talking about Kipling. <laughs> yes, um, I could be incredibly rude and say Rudy, but I, I, I'm not going to. Anyway, um, yeah, so a, a very interesting writer. I think somebody that, again, in this part of the world, perhaps is best known for his children's books. But like many of the authors that we've spoken about in our bibliography series, he's something of a Renaissance man. He was a journalist. He was a poet. He did short stories. He wrote novels. Um, and I think through it all, what we can absolutely say about the writing, if not the politics, is that there, um, he was an incredibly skilled writer. He had an a huge facility with language, particularly with vernacular, as well as with, what's the word, simple and direct language. And he was also a remarkable storyteller. He had a very strong grasp on on narrative and in carrying you through stories. So that's the good stuff. <laughs> I will come right out and say it. Um, for a large part of my childhood and well into my teen years, I was a huge, huge fan of Kipling. Um, and I still really love his writing. And I think that's one of the um, one of the things that I sit uncomfortably with when it comes to reading, uh, because of course Kipling was also. Um, very, I was going to say very pro-colonization. And that is true. But but therein lies the complication of his legacy, right? Because he also had a deep and abiding love for the people of India and the stories from India and the space from, from which all of these came from. And in fact, he often talked about how he considered himself, um, you know, Indian more than British. So I think it I think Kipling is actually an interesting example of someone whose writing is actually very, very good and has actually produced um, specific aspects or specific kinds of literature that really brought 
the idea of colonization to the rest of the world in a particular way, how his legacy is then carried on, I think is where it gets interesting. But I wanted to add on to all of those things you said. And the other thing that makes his writing, I think, so relatable is the fact that he's such a keen observer of life and of every day. So when you read his stories, you immediately feel whether it's um, whether it's it's a tiger, whether it's a wolf, whether it's um, children in the streets of um, India, it's you get transported into these spaces and into these mindsets so easily. Yes, um, but of course, the thing about spaces and mindsets and even love of a place is how you love a place. And you, you said colonial earlier, but I think, um, if I may, the, the perhaps the more accurate word here is that he is a huge imperialist. Yes. Um, so it's more so that he loves the idea of the British Empire. Um, and actually, that extended throughout time to being a Francophone and believing in the power of, well, I don't think we can call it an empire from the French, but you know, believing in the power of um, of French culture, French civilization, of their position in the the great game, so to speak, um, and so he, because he believes so much in the empire, in imperialism. That, in some ways, I think is what sits so uncomfortably alongside his experience of India, because I don't doubt that he loves India. He talks so much of growing up there, um, even though he actually left the country to be raised in a sort of boarding house of sorts um, when he was five or six, very young. So, And he returned later on. But the point being that even that love of India, of its people, of its language, of its sights and sounds is seen through a very particular lens and is therefore translated into very very specific ways as well in stories like The Jungle Book, for instance, which you could read as, if you only knew the Disney versions, you could read it as a celebration of, of wildness, of, um, of difference, of being able to move between two worlds, of, between the village and the forest. But you could also read it as a very didactic take on what is considered good and acceptable behavior as seen through an animal embodying a specific trait, as opposed to these stories of adventure. I think it's worth saying that um, what becomes really clear when you look at Kipling's life is um, the notion of power and privilege, because, um, you know, for all of his, I love India, I want to go back there and I want to live there and so on and so forth. And and he he did as a, so post-schooling, um, he actually went on to work in a newspaper in Lahore, which was then part of India. And he spent, um, he spent about six years there doing that. And then as his writing career took off, he decided that it would make more sense to be based in London and then therefore moved. And I think this sort of ease of mobility, this sort of being able to make a choice about where you want to call home and where you want to say you belong is really a privilege that is only afforded to a few kinds of people. And I think that in itself is quite telling in, in Kipling's ability to style himself how he wants and how it suits him. Uh, for what it's worth, um, I thought we could quickly go back to where it all began. Because So he was born in Bombay, uh, in, the, um, in Bombay on the 30th of December, 1865. His parents had moved there and um, they thought of themselves as Anglo-Indians. So these uh, this whole community of uh, British people who essentially moved to India and considered themselves a part of the British Raj there. And he was there till the age of five. And then, as you said, he was shipped off to um, good old England to go to school um, and spent much of his 
those portions of his years, I guess the uh, childhood all the way to the teen years in a boarding house. Um, in which he has spoken and, and written uh, about abuse, right? Um, of, of facing a coldness of, he in fact called his treatment in that boarding house torture. And I think that that is something that has made its way into the writings as a whole, because earlier when we were talking about the outsider perspective, the outsider-insider perspective, I think, because it's a little bit of a mix of both, right? It's an outsider who believes or wants to be an insider, an insider who occasionally feels like an outsider. And I think that that is partly the experience of being an Anglo-Indian. It's it's in the title itself, um, but it also comes from being someone who grew up in a boarding house um, away from away from his parents. I think he was there with his sister, in fact. And so it took a while before his parents actually returned to to. Portsmouth, I think it was, or basically returned to England and claimed their children and then sent them off to school. Um, his schooling years also w- went a long way towards shaping him because I wanted to get to the name of the school that he went to, which is West Ho, Westward Ho <laughs> in Devon, or rather the United Services College. And I, I think considering the amount of military themes as well as uh, the fact that he wrote propaganda for the British government in later years and frequently commentated on um, on war and in fact on what it was that the British army and various other armies were doing. I think it's important to know partly where that came from, uh, which is also a product of its time, right? Like military schools at the time were perhaps a more common fixture than they are now. So I think one thing that a lot of people may not realise, or, or rather, um, unless you're a, a real Kipling fan, uh, the sheer volume of his writing, the sheer number of short stories and poetry and collections that he's written, he's not written a lot of novels, um, just about four. But um, when it comes to his short stories and his poetry, he's so prolific. And he consistently wrote from the time that, well, he, he started writing earlier, but from the time he started publishing, which was when... When he first um, moved to Lahore and became and started writing for the newspaper, he started publishing short stories in the newspaper itself. And then they eventually started becoming anthologized and he became a name that was, um, you know, eventually known even to readers of um, English literature in, in the rest of the empire. I find myself constantly surprised at um, how you can actually track his life and the things that he's experienced through his writing because um, you get his years in in Rangoon, you get his time in India. Uh, He also writes about all the political events that are happening and his stories tend to circle those points quite frequently as well. Yeah, even his experience of America is quite particular to the history of the country. I mean, he ended up, so he, he lived in America for a time and he ended up leaving because of partly a larger conflict that was happening between the British Empire and and America, a dispute um, over, I can't remember what it was now. There are several disputes in his life story and a lot of of them sit in between world wars. I believe it was an American-British border issue that uh, that they at that time was a big deal. So um, that's why he ended up leaving America. And um, I think going back to what you were saying earlier about how you can track Kipling through the places that he was in and also through the events that shaped them, it is perhaps not surprising for a writer who was very political, albeit not one that you would 
think of as political in, say, the George Orwell sense. Orwell mm. actually had quite a lot to say about Kipling, which we can get to. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think it's a product of this particular era in, in the British Empire, the kind of mobility that people who belong to Britain had. Um, and also the fact that he was a prodigious writer. And with that prodigious nature came early success because of all the skills that we spoke about earlier. I mean, he he actually achieved a great amount of success in a short period of time. We're talking about Rudyard Kipling or Rudyard Kipling, depending on how you say his name. Um, and that's because it's our bibliography episode. It's also his birthday on the 30th of December. Uh, let us know, are you a fan of Kipling? Uh, what are some of his works that you've enjoyed? Do you find him controversial? You can WhatsApp us 018-789-8899, tweet us at BFM Radio, write to us at buythebook at bfm.my. Brainy, fancy material. BFM 89.9. Mandalay by Rudyard Kipling By the old bull mine pagoda Looking lazy at the sea There's a Burma girl a-setting And I know she thinks of me For the wind is in the palm trees And the temple bells they say Come you back you British soldier Come you back to Mandalay Come you back to Mandalay, where the old flotilla lay. Can't you hear their paddles chunking from Rangoon to Mandalay? On the road to Mandalay, where the flying fishes play. And the dawn comes up like thunder out of China, across the bay. Welcome back. You're listening to Buy the Book with Sharmila and Lynn. And for our bibliography episode this month, we are dedicating it to Rudyard Kipling. Uh, it's his birthday on the 30th of December. Uh, so we thought, well, it's a good time to discuss this beloved but also um, controversial writer, imperialist, colonialist, whatever you might want to call him. So we we spoke a little bit about his writing itself, and I thought we could pick up on that. Lynn, do you have favorites among, you know, the, the huge pantheon of Kipling? works. So I was thinking about this earlier because I think that the first Kipling that I read must have been If. Um, and it must have been If because of school, because this was something that I think we had, which is quite typical, I think, of the Commonwealth anyway. Um, so <laughs> If is the first, my first Kipling. But the first Kipling that I loved, it's hard to love If as a child when, when you're, <laughs> you know, reciting this, this paean to, sto- to being stoic the and calm. And, yeah, exactly. It's not something that us um, here in the tropics necessarily relate to that much. But um, the first one that I read and loved was the Just So Stories. I loved the Just So Stories. Um, Reading it made me feel satisfied and and happy. And I think um, it's important how you encounter Kipling first. In other words, do you encounter him as an uncomplicated teller of wonderful stories or do you encounter him first as uh, the man who wrote The White Man's Burden? <laughs> you know, th- these are the questions. But yeah, um, I loved Just Those Stories. I, of course, love Jungle Book and I have enjoyed his poems. I understand his gifts as a poet if I don't 
necessarily enjoy the poems themselves. I completely agree. See, I think the reason a lot of uh, post-colonial children, as it were, have trouble reconciling what they feel about Kipling is because for so many of us, our introduction to him was just so stories or Jungle Book, uh, well, Jungle Books rather, mm. or Disney's Jungle Book. And and because of all of those, Kipling has this like grandfatherly children's story presence in our minds and the stories are so delightful and, and so exciting and, and they engage the imagination so much that then when you come across White Man's Burden in your cynical teenage years, perhaps, then you're like, wait, what? This is what he thinks about people like me? That said, I completely agree. I love his poetry. Mandalay is one of my favourite poems. Just the melancholy and the nostalgia of it. And I think Mandalay is a great example of the kind of work you can get from a writer like Kipling positioned in his space versus something like White Man's Burden, which which really is, I think, one of the worst parts of his legacy. I, I did want to say also that on the subject of the poetry, I think that poems can often feel, especially for people who don't naturally gravitate towards it or, or who think of it, who think of poems as uh, perhaps a more intimidating section of literature. The thing about a poet like Kipling, whose uh, ease of language and simple vocabulary extended to poems and and the reason why they're still so often studied and why people find it so easy to recite it I mean like you throw a stone Christmas parties right you throw a stone someone can recite it <laughs> like I don't know why this is the case but someone can and I think it comes down to that ease of access actually with the poems you read them and they are as simple as reading like a very beautiful essay almost. And that's Kipling's writing almost throughout, right? I was going to bring up Kim, which for a time was one of my favourite novels. Um, I naturally went into it because I recognised the name Kipling from the cover. Um, but Kim, again, not without its problems, um, but also the, the simplicity of language, the ability to immediately put you in a place and a space. I think that, that that's the reason why even people like George Orwell, who was deeply critical of Kipling, and his his relationship to the empire still didn't fault his writing. Orwell was deeply, um, you know, deeply in admiration of Kipling's writing. It was his politics that he took issue with. Uh, I want. I'm glad you brought up Orwell because I actually think that his point of view on Kipling is one that I entirely agree with, which is to say that whatever you may feel, and I think we haven't spoken enough about White Man's Burden actually, because I have a lot to unburden about that poem. But um, the <laughs> The, say what you will about Kipling. He wrote from a point of view and he was not shy and he did not waver on it. So, um, And I think that that makes him somewhat unique um, because very often authors, artists, writers um, are positioned as almost outsiders of society. It's rare that you find um, an author who is so widely and in his day almost universally lauded um, while also being deeply, deeply conservative. Like almost every political position he held he held was a conservative one. He um, did not believe that anybody should ever leave the empire. He believed that America should be doing more to extend its empire. You know, there are all these different things about um, how he approached this idea of who should be in power and for how long. And he didn't waver on it, which means also that when you read his books, you don't have to wonder. You know where he's coming from. And I think that there is something to be said about somebody who sticks the landing on the strength of their convictions. I don't agree with any of said convictions, but still. 
<laughs> I think that's a, that's that's probably the best thing that someone from our position could say about Kipling. Um, I wanted to pick up on the on the white man burden aspect because oh, um, certainly that's something that that comes up a lot, and I think it 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 it's at the crux of his beliefs, isn't it? And and like you said earlier, you can juxtapose the meaning from that poem onto most of his writing, um, whether it's Jungle Book or whether it's Kim, and that reading of um, a benevolent paternal white figure being able to um, help and and shape these savage natives. The half-devils. Yes, yes, the half-devils. Um, that's really quite painful. And I, and I remember that, I distinctly remember that for me, that was that was the end of my love affair with Kipling uh, because I suddenly realised how he would see me. So um, I want to take it back all the way to our first bibliography episode in which we spoke about Shakespeare and uh, briefly, because why not, um, and, and briefly mentioned, I think, how some of his, he invented words or he, he popularized certain words that we are still using till this day. And I think the white man's burden <laughs> is one of those things, unfortunately, that have stuck around in this very particular way. Uh, the other one, I believe, uh, from the research was the Hun, um, referring yes. to Germans and, and the, the Kaiser as the Hun. And Which, to be fair, he quite cleverly flipped because um, the Kaiser was basically using Huns to refer to the people that, um, you know, to, to the Bolsheviks, I believe. Mm, so, it's, uh, well, that's what you would expect from a propagandist, you know, <laughs> that, that's, that's the kind of skill that you would expect. Um, but I think that when looking at the white man's burden, the reason why it's painful is because, um, yeah, this is the same man who would have written the books that you read as a child um, and that you loved as a child. Who, who wrote about Baloo, for instance. So, so that's one source of pain. The other is um, because he's a good writer. That's the simple mm. part of it. It reads like a very well, well-written manifesto um, and it laments the laziness or the fact that uh, we will resist their gods. We will resist everything they try to do I for us. I felt gaslit by that poem. I now know what, what the feeling is when I re- realised how I felt when I read it. It felt like I should be believing this poem. No, it makes sense. And I think the the huge pain point is that when it comes to white nationalism or when it comes to uh, perhaps people who are still pro-Britain in a very particular way, these points of view continue to echo. It's no longer about the United States and the Philippines, but it still is um, in many ways about how we are viewed. And so I think... It's very difficult. Uh, I have to say it's incredibly difficult to read White Man's Burden now as an adult and as someone who has enjoyed Kipling's other works. Um, I did want to ask you, though, how you feel about If. I actually love If um, Mm. in that that sort of inspirational, put it in someone's notebook as something to look at when you're looking to the future kind of way. Um, It's it's never been my favourite, maybe because it's overshared and overused. Um, But it is is sort of a, a very evocative piece and I can understand why it resonates for so many people. Yes, me too. Uh, I I think that one is the opposite of White Man's Burden in that I've grown closer to it over the years. Um, I remember reading it as a child and thinking, yeah, yeah. Um, (laughs) I did not get the inspiration I was supposed to get. But yeah, I I think he's a very consistent writer, Kipling. That's the thing about him. Like him or hate him, um, the man is consistent in quality, in tone and in perspective across literally everything. We haven't mentioned yet, and, and most people know this already, he was, of course, awarded the Nobel Prize uh, for young. literature at, at a very young age. And I do think that that consistency has something to do with it because uh, the Nobel, of course, awards um, 
awards a body of work rather than than a particular piece of work. So they were actually awarding sort of the breadth of things that he had written at that point. And as you said, it wasn't it wasn't in his later years. He died at seventy, um, but his works have actually remained really consistent over the years. Even when they are talking about his years in Japan or, as you said, his years in America, Kipling was not a surprising writer, but but a surprisingly enjoyable one even now. You know, there are some authors I think that we could see ec- modern echoes of. Uh, so Emily Dickinson, right? Mysterious recluse, <laughs> writing strange poetry in New England. Like you could see a modern version of that. She could exist today. Um, Charles Dickens, less so perhaps, but there's still so much to write about London and, and about um, his particular loves of London that you could see a Dickens, although perhaps a Dickens today could not exist without a Dickens then. The point I'm trying to make is I don't think Kipling could exist today. A writer like Kipling is so much a product of what was open and available to people in his day and age. Um, His preoccupations were also so much to do with the wars and the battles that happened at that time that I find it very hard. Even the idea of an Anglo-Indian, you know, is not something we could think of today that it's just interesting. Kipling very much is a product of the that period that he lived in, 1865 to 1936. And I think that's exactly why, despite the controversies, it's worth discussing uh, the kinds of works that come out from someone like that, um, especially when the works are in themselves so good. We've been talking about Rudyard Kipling uh, for our bibliography episode. Let us know, are you a fan? Um, are you not? You can WhatsApp us, 018-789-8899, tweet us at BFM Radio, write to us at buythebook at BFM. And that brings us to footnotes, where, of course, um, to bookend our bibliography episodes, we usually talk about favourite adaptations or adaptations that we'd like to see from the author that we've been discussing. And uh, Kipling is an interesting one because, of course, there's one overarching um, w- uh, film that we can't run away from, which is Jungle Book. And I just want to... Which one, to, though? Ah, so, of course, of course, the animated Disney one is the first one I ever watched. Um, I do genuinely love it. I rewatch it now and I still love it. And I don't know. I, I think that's one of those films that, in a particular way, manages to do away with the more problematic aspects of the original and ends up being just a charming, beautiful text. Look for the bare necessities, the simple bare necessities. Forget about your worries and your stress. I mean the bare necessities or Mother Nature's recipes that bring the bare necessities of life. Wherever I wander, wherever I roam, I couldn't be found off my big home. The bees are buzzing in the tree to make some honey just for me. When you look under the rocks and plants and take a glance at the fancy ants, then maybe try a few. The bare necessities of life will come to you. They'll come to you. 
look for the yeah, I love, love, love Disney's Jungle Book. Actually, I can say that quite comfortably because both the animated version and the later Jean Favreau live-action version are both, I think, are rather lovely, although very, very different. And, you know, it makes sense that Jungle Book is the one that has been made into film so often, partly because it's so evocative, the images are all there, the characters are so finely drawn. I do think it's interesting, though, that we always seem to tell the same Jungle Book story, which is to say the first. Yes. Um, and, and we don't actually look into the um, the further chapters of the Jungle Books. Because those chapters are where it also gets more problematic. Um, <laughs> and, and that whole divide between civilized, uncivilized, what it means to be a man versus what it means to be savage. Um, doesn't make for the most fun of children's movies, I must say. I don't think it's as fun to watch Mowgli perhaps not loving the animals that he grew up with as much. Yeah, I think that that is the tricky thing when it comes to Jungle Book. I mean, I'd be interested to see if we ever do sequels as opposed to continuously remaking the first one with uh, Shere Khan playing a certain role with, you know, just that that particular chunk. I wanted to talk about a film that is adapted from a Kipling novella and that also features Kipling as a character. And that is 1975's The Man Who Would Be King, which is a film that I love so much. It's uh, directed by John Huston. It's very much got that uh, golden Hollywood feel because, of course, it stars Sean Connery, Michael Caine, it had Christopher Plummer as Kipling, who's also the narrator of the story. And I just, it, it's a wonderful tale of in some ways, what we're talking about of colonial adventures gone terribly, terribly wrong. And also as seen through, I guess, of a story that already was exploring some of those issues, problematizing some of those issues, but being retold in the 70s when mores and thoughts around that had already changed. There is no place on earth too forbidding. There is no adventure too dangerous to dare. There is no dream of wealth and glory too impossible for the man who would be king. Connery and Kane, rogue and renegade, reckless and fearless soldiers of fortune on the richest adventure of their life. Across a thousand miles of danger, come with Sean Connery and Michael Kane as they try to capture a whole country, a scheme for rascals to become royalty in the long lost land of Alexander the Great. Rudyard Kipling's The Man Who Would Be King. They share the treasure. They share the danger. They share the adventure. Sean Connery, Michael Caine, and Christopher Plummer in John Huston's The Man Who Would Be King. You've talked about this movie so much, and every time you do, I make a note to myself that I have to watch it because I haven't. Shavala, Sean Connery, Michael Caine, Christopher <laughs> I know. Palmer. I shouldn't need to say more. So on that note of adaptations that are not quite Kipling, but are worth checking out, um, I wanted to recommend a particular anthology of short stories called Not So Stories, um, clearly inspired by and responding to Just So Stories. And it features a whole bunch of um Writers from post-colonial nations, I think would be fair to say. There's some Malaysian writers in there as well. And the whole idea is that they're reclaiming these stories from Kipling and using their own local uh, myths and, and stories to 
kind of respond to Kipling's whole, how did the leopard get its spot? How did the, you know, this animal do that? And I love it. The collection is so good. And I think it's also a really healthy and interesting way to engage with Kipling's legacy, to both acknowledge the huge long shadow that he casts over the literary world, but also to interrogate it and to criticize what he brought to this notion of writing literature. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. I want to read that quite badly. Um, I something that we didn't mention in our the main body of our show was the connection between Kipling and Mark Twain, um, yes. and how Mark Twain actually wrote a response to White Man's Burden. So I think that uh, this is part of a larger tradition of responding to Kipling. So on, you know, sometimes on our our footnotes for these, we tend to get quite speculative. And I think The Man Who Would Be King um, has inspired me to think about wanting to see more films like that. I'd love to see a film with Kipling and Twain, for instance. I'd love to see. Uh, so apparently he used to hang out with Arthur Conan Doyle. And so I'd really like to see either a, a, a TV series or a movie that kind of interrogates that relationship. I'm not sure whether I necessarily want to see any more adaptations of his works, even something like Kim, which I really love, feels like it wouldn't land right anymore. But I'd like to see stories that perhaps engage with him as a person. I want to support that, but apparently Kipling and Doyle played a lot of golf. Um, And I don't... (laughs) I don't know how interesting that would be as a film. So maybe we steer clear of the golf golf courses. Um, There might be something there. Let us know what adaptations of uh, Rudyard Kipling's works have you enjoyed? What would you like to see? You can WhatsApp us 018-789-8899, tweet us at BFM Radio, write to us at buythebook at bfm.my. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.